Parker Palmer is one of my favorite writers. I think some of you will recognize the name. Does that sound familiar to anyone, Parker Palmer? He is a Quaker. He has at one time been director of the Pendle Hill Retreat Center near Philadelphia. The theme of his book, Let Your Life Speak, is one of my favorites because it's all about listening. In this case, listening to our own lives. We often speak of this as listening for a sense of calling from a voice deep in our hearts. Here he speaks of his struggle to understand what this meant in his own life. I was in my early 30s when I began literally to wake up to questions about my vocation. By all appearances, things were going well, but seeking a path more purposeful than accumulating wealth, holding power, winning at competition, or securing a career, I had started to understand that it is indeed possible to live a life other than one's own. Fearful that I was doing just that, I would snap awake in the middle of the night and stare for long hours at the ceiling. Then I ran across the old Quaker saying, let your life speak. Let your life speak. I thought I understood what they meant. Let the highest truths and values guide you. Live up to them in everything you do. So I lined up the loftiest ideals I could find and set out to achieve them. The results were rarely admirable, often laughable, and sometimes grotesque, but always they were unreal, a distortion of my true self, as must be the case when one lives from the outside in and not the inside out. Today, some 30 years later, let your life speak means something else to me. Before you tell your life what you intend to do with it, listen. Listen for what it intends to do with you. Before you tell your life what truths and values you have decided to live up to, let your life tell you what truths you embody, what values you represent. Vocation, the way I was seeking it, becomes an act of will and of violence toward ourselves. Vocation does not come from willfulness. It comes from listening. May Sarton wrote, Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, Which of us has not worn or tried to wear other people's faces? To fit some mold because we admire it, or our parents urged it on us, because we just don't think much of ourselves the way we are, or want to make ourselves more acceptable in the world. Perhaps to get ahead in work that will earn us an income we need, though it doesn't really suit us. There are many reasons, and we may not realize we're distorting our real selves, until we've been at it a while. But eventually we begin to feel the pain of distorting who we are in our effort to wear other people's faces. We hurt. This can be so in the workplace, and it can be so in daily life with its ubiquitous media culture, which 
invites conformity. In the workplace, we may not have the luxury of choosing work that feeds our souls. Most people around the world do not. But we don't always have to feel locked in for life, even in work we might not choose. We may be able to find fulfillment if we can change how we see it, change the way we see the significance of the work. If we can bring our whole selves to it and change the way we relate to our co-workers and to the public. Outside the workplace, becoming more fully ourselves includes the space we make in our lives for friends and for family, for spouse, for children. It includes the life of our minds and our hearts, our hobbies and our inner lives. It includes the causes to which we give ourselves. It includes the church. And so whether we're just starting out in life or living in retirement and anywhere in between, we do well to listen to the calling of our hearts, to our vocation. For when I speak of vocation, I'm speaking of the whole of our lives. I'm speaking of the choices we make about all these things. From childhood to the last days of our lives as we are dissolved and shaken, to use May Sarton's words. And in the end, become more fully ourselves. I'm speaking about the lifelong process of becoming whole. As Jonah discovered, says writer Greg Lavoy, a call rocks the boat. And so it is. It's uncomfortable. Very often, like Jonah, we try to escape. Sometimes again and again. But if it's an authentic calling, it keeps coming back. But it won't go away. In Lavoie's words, being unwilling to bear the hurly-burly of faithfulness to our call, we court disaster. Disaster. Latin for against the stars, our stars. And we end up agitated anyway. Although we have the choice not to follow a call, if we do not do so, the Sufi poet Kabir said, our lives will be infected with a kind of weird failure. We'll feel alienated from ourselves and fitful with boredom, the common cold of the soul. The calls we will not name or follow coalesce into entities that will attempt to tunnel their way into our consciousness using any rough tool at hand to remind us of their imperatives. And they will do so through the impeccable logic of pain. An old Roman saying goes, the fates will lead those who will. Those who won't, they drag. So let me share a little of my own story and how I courted disaster in this way, going against my true self, until the fates caught up. It had occurred to me, even in college, that I might enjoy ministry. I had grown up immersed in the life of the church. As a youth, I found religious issues absorbing. I loved leading worship. But when it came time to choose a career, I can remember quite vividly that last year in college, drawing back from ministry as I realized my fear of the pastoral side of ministry, which might take me outside the comfort zone of my intellect. Perhaps it wasn't really a calling, or perhaps it was an excuse. I knew ministry expected a sense of calling, 
And at this stage of my life, it didn't feel anything dramatic, so I dismissed it. My own grandfather, for whom I am named, had been a minister, but I never talked to him about ministry. Nor had I talked to one of my uncles, also a minister. Nor to my own minister. I wasn't ready to face my fears or talk with anyone who might encourage me to do so, I think. At the time, I'm sure I shared the popular assumption that when it comes to the workplace, within a broad range of possibilities, one can do anything that one trains oneself to do. It was just a matter of work, no calling needed. So why not go for what pays the most? This mindset fails to consider that just because we can do the work doesn't mean that we'll enjoy it or find it fulfilling. So off I went to prepare for the law, which I knew would pay much more than ministry. No one in my family had been a lawyer. I didn't search out anyone for advice about the law either. I just ran away from those fears. Yet not surprisingly, when I finally faced them 30 years later, I found that by now they were not fears but longings. I say these things not to lament that I chose law or say that I should have chosen ministry instead at that time. Life is just too complex to make the what-if game fruitful. I say them instead because my real regret is that I didn't learn to trust my heart and follow its leadings wherever they might lead. And who knows where that might have been back then. I say them to you because I can't remember it being suggested to me at home or in church or in school that in choosing my life's work I should first look inward. I don't remember any caution about wearing other people's faces. And because I didn't seek anyone's counsel, I missed any other encouragement to address my fears. Of course, that may be because I was just not ready to listen, to hear them. In, I did hear in college philosophy the importance of that old maxim, know thyself. But I heard it at an intellectual level. I didn't understand what it meant. It might have scared me if I had. It took 30 years, but my boat, like Jonah's, eventually began to rock. Now there was no mistaking the call, which I've described before from this pulpit. I quit the law and went off to seminary, a time in my life that felt more like being given three years in the guest suite of the Girardelli chocolate factory than it did uh, compared to the law school, which, looking back, felt more like three years spent in the gym intellectual gym. I have not looked back since then except to wonder why, as I am this morning, why it took so long to accept the challenge of looking inward and listening to my heart. But understanding ourselves is not easy, and I resisted that challenge. It wasn't easy even for Parker Palmer. Recalling a time when he was in residence at the Quaker community of Pendle Hill, He says he decided, after a decade of conscious vocational search, to convene what the Quakers call a clearness committee to help him decide whether to accept an invitation to become the president of a small college. Tell us what attracts you most about it, he was asked. But all his answers seemed to focus on what he did not like. Fundraising, politics, giving up his summer vacations even wearing suits. 
When someone repeated the question, he heard himself saying that, well, he guessed he'd like seeing his picture in the paper with the title president under it. Awkward pause. Then, Parker, can you think of an easier way to get your name in the paper? <laughs> he didn't take the job. It isn't easy because our egos get involved and because our rational selves can go only so far in understanding hopes and fears that lie mostly buried in the subconscious. To listen to our hearts, we have to go beyond the issues of money and status which dominate the culture we live in and below the level of the intellect. We have to recognize that the good life we long for is not just about our standard of living, but about our standard of life. It's about finding wholeness. It's about becoming who we really are as we match our deepest longings with the world's greatest need in the imagery of Frederick Buchner. It's in this matching that we find the meaning and satisfaction that have traditionally been called vocation. That is, a life that calls to us. Vocation, Palmer reminds us, is not an act of the will. It's about listening, listening to our lives. This is a spiritual journey. The great religions teach that the spiritual journey is one of growing in awareness. But that's more than just living in the moment. It's about opening all our senses to what's going on, both within us and around us in that moment. It draws alike on intellect and feeling, on head and heart. That reality includes more than the realm of the intellect, then. Call it soul, call it subconscious, call it spirit. It's the realm that expresses itself in dreams, thoughts, and images that come unbidden into our minds. I remember that for years I would have the experience in dreams which seemed so real that I never thought of them as dreams of leaping through the air as in a long jump just across the ground and keeping on going and going as far as I wanted. Or I could go upstairs or downstairs, just continuing to fly. There was no limit. I think I knew that I wasn't meant to try it physically. But I never gave serious attention to where the image came from or what it was trying to tell me. It was just there. Only in thinking about this sermon have I considered the possibility that my spirit was telling me that there might be more to the life to life than I was experiencing. I didn't have to let my fears keep me stuck in a marriage that had long been failing, in work that never engaged my soul, in a life lived wholly in my head. I suspect there were other signals, too, in those dreams and other dreams, but I wasn't ready to pay attention, and I didn't. Most of us, says Greg Lavoie, will never encounter a burning bush or be struck down on the open road as did Saul of Damascus. Most of us go through life without ever encountering things like that. The signs we need to attend to will be more subtle and often disguised, and most of us go through life oblivious to them. But if we are aware, if we are mindful, and keep our senses attuned, they'll eventually get through to us. The channels through which they come 
the boy says, are like pierced ears. We have to keep earrings in them or they close up. I'm too old for body piercing, I think, but I love this metaphor for keeping the channels of our listening open. One of these channels is our inner life, our prayer life, if you will. But the heart of prayer is not speaking, but listening, though we think of it as words. The words at their best invite us into the questions, and through the questions into listening for the answers. Sometimes they will come in a thunderclap, seldom in a voice we might hear. Seldom will they come in a thunderclap, and seldom will they come in a voice we might hear. But in our meditation, we may find a thought or idea or image that keeps popping into our minds. Who knows where it came from? And if we keep the channels open, the mind attuned, we will hear our lives speaking to us. Obviously, not all such ideas come from the best that is within us. Some may come from ego, from temptation, from ambition or fear or greed. How often have we as humans claimed God's blessing for our violence? And so we need community to help us hold our discoveries up to the light. Sometimes when we begin to look within the chaos that bubbles up can be frightening as with memories of painful childhood experiences or abusive ones. And so we may also benefit from experienced guidance on the journey from therapists, mentors, pastors, doctors, sometimes just the presence of other seekers in groups that we trust, small groups in safe settings within the church, 12-step groups, Sometimes just one-on-one conversations with trusted friends or others who have been through what we are going through. For me, a holistic approach to religion must embrace both the journey, the inner journey of self-awareness, and the journey outward into the world around us. The world of justice-making human service. Without the journey outward, the journey by inward by itself can become narcissistic. Without the journey inward, the outer journey by itself may lead us into burnout. Or, and worse, we may find we are following only the call of ego or guilt, serving our own need more than the world's. Interwoven, these two journeys, inward and outward, can make our lives feel whole. The great test comes as years later we look back. Have we found the place where the deepest longing of our souls has met the world's greatest hunger, the world's greatest need? Have we found not just a living, but a life? In the great body of Hasidic wisdom, there's a much-told story about Rabbi Zusya. Toward the end of his long life, he is said to have declared, In the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask, why were you not Zisya? When our time comes, what will we say? 